Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lean. I'm Jake Tapper, and we're in the middle of a very busy afternoon as we come on air. Uh, Moments ago, we just saw the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor. This was the 81-year-old's first public appearance with cameras since that recent freezing episode in front of reporters. Also right now, a sentencing hearing is underway for the man known as the chairman of the far-right group, the Proud Boys. Enrique Tarrio is his name. He's the last of the five, five Proud Boy defendants to be sentenced for their convicted role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Prosecutors are are pushing for 33 years in prison for Tario because he was convicted on seditious conspiracy charges. Defense attorneys are making their best arguments against that. Also, a major show of force coming up on the lead. The secretaries from three branches of the U.S. military calling on Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville to stop his hold on all military nominations. He's doing this because he objects to the Pentagon's uh, abortion travel care policy. In uh, Washington Post uh, op-ed, they call Tuberville's actions, quote, dangerous to national security. That from the secretaries of the Navy and the Air Force and the Army, all three will be here exclusively together in studio coming up. We're going to start, however, with that law and justice lead and the sentencing hearing for the chair of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, the hearing that's happening right now. This is the latest example of the criminal activity and the consequences around January 6th. We've seen four Proud Boys already given lengthy sentences after three of them were convicted of seditious conspiracy. One of the most serious criminal charges you can be convicted of in the U.S., and not an easy charge uh, to get a guilty verdict for. CNN's Evan Perez is here to lay out the significance of the sentence. Evan, what message could this send, especially given the fact that, that Tario was not even at the Capitol that day? That's right, Jake. He was not at the Capitol. And prosecutors are making the case that, uh, look, the Proud Boys are in a class by themselves. They were, frankly, the, the, the tip of the spear that led some of the mob into the Capitol on January 6th. And they're saying that uh, Enrique Tario has shown no remorse, far from it. He has given interviews just in the last few weeks in which he said the Proud Boys did nothing wrong. Right now, prosecutors are stressing that uh, to the judge as he gets ready to issue a a sentence. One of the things that you've heard from Enrique Tario's uh, attorney is that Tario is not a terrorist. They're saying uh, he said uh, he is a misguided uh, patriot. He also pointed out that uh, because Enrique Tario was arrested just before January 6th, he was not here. He was banned from being inside the District of Columbia that day. And so he could not have controlled what happened with the Proud Boys. The judge, Timothy Kelly, responded, well, you made that argument to the jury and the jury did not believe that, Jake. Right. He's uh, they're considering uh, terrorist charges against him. How does his sentence compared to the other Proud Boy members? Are there different factors uh, that are being weighed here? 
Well, yeah, because he is the leadership. He is the leader of the group. That's what prosecutors are emphasizing, and the judge seems to be going along with that. Again, right now, we're waiting for the judge to make a final decision. But just to compare, uh, Ethan Nordian, another uh, of the leaders of the Proud Boys, he took over leadership because Tario was not uh, able to be in the District of Columbia that day. He got 18 years. Joseph Biggs got 17 years. Zachary Real, 15 years. And then uh, Dominic Pozzola, 10 years. As you pointed out, uh, the judge was weighing whether to add what what, ter what prosecutors call a terrorism enhancement. That could add, you know, about 10 years or so to the sentence. Uh, the judge accepted that, Jake, but as he, we, we don't know yet whether he is going to uh, allow that to be part of the sentence. Uh, in the previous four sentencings, he accepted the terrorism enhancement, but then brought it back down. So we don't know yet whether he will uh, allow that, uh, that that enhancement to increase and make the uh, make the sentence for Enrique Tario even harsher. As you pointed out, uh, prosecutors are asking for 33 years, and so we'll see where he ends up in the next uh, hour or so, Jake. All right, Evan Pettis, thank you so much. We'll come back to you when you uh, have. That news for us, continuing with our law and justice lead, all 19 co-defendants in the Georgia election subversion case have officially pleaded not guilty and waived their rights to an in-person arraignment. That means no, none of them are going to be showing up tomorrow in Fulton County Court. This all comes as we're still waiting for a judge to decide if former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' case will be moved to federal court. The Georgia case is just one of four cases plaguing Donald Trump right now. Today we're learning in the federal election subversion case, not Georgia, but federal, special counsel Jack Smith is still digging and still following the money. CNN's Paula Reed has this exclusive reporting for us. All of the 19 defendants charged in the Georgia election interference case, including former President Trump, have now entered pleas of not guilty. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. Tuesday, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, along with six other defendants, all pleaded not guilty and waived their right to an arraignment in Fulton County, Georgia. This, as CNN has learned that special counsel Jack Smith is widening his federal investigation. And our investigation of other individuals continues. Focusing on fundraising and efforts to breach voting equipment, raising the possibility of additional charges after the special counsel indicted Trump last month. Since the attack on our Capitol, the Department of Justice has remained committed to ensuring accountability for those criminally responsible for what happened that day. This case is brought consistent with that commitment. In recent weeks, investigators have asked multiple witnesses about former Trump 2020 election lawyer Sidney Powell. We have evidence of different numbers of votes being injected into the system. She was identified as a co-conspirator in the federal indictment and faces criminal charges in Georgia for allegedly helping coordinate and fund a multi-state plot to illegally access voting systems after the election. There should never be another election conducted in this country. I don't care if it's for local dog catcher using a Dominion machine. Witnesses have been asked about whether Powell was able to provide any evidence of her conspiracy theories and about Powell's nonprofit, Defending the Republic, which raised money off election lies. According to invoices obtained by CNN, Defending the Republic hired forensic firms that ultimately accessed voting equipment in four swing states won by Biden, Georgia, Pennsylvania, 
Michigan, and Arizona. And our thanks to Paula Reed for that report. We're going to talk with her more in the next block about all that that means. In our politics lead right now, the U.S. Senate is back from its five-week break today with a gargantuan task to pass a spending bill within the next 16 legislative days or the U.S. government will shut down. And even though recess is over, Republican hardliners are still willing to play a game of chicken as the deadline approaches, hoping to force the White House and the Senate to accept a bundle of conservative priorities. This as one of the Senate's most powerful leaders just spoke moments ago after freezing up in front of TV cameras twice in just over a month. Let's go to CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. So, Manu, we just heard directly uh, from uh, Republican Leader McConnell on the Senate floor. Um, he seemed to speak fine just now. Did he address in any meaningful way uh, this latest freezing incident? Uh, he really only addressed it very briefly, Jake. He said that that one moment got some considerable attention over his recess, and then he decided to pivot on to the business at hand in the Senate, namely on key issues such as funding the, the federal government, something they have to do before the end of the month, even as there's a sharp disagreement about how to get there. That is one of the issues that he wanted to focus on, that things are moving forward as business as usual, despite what happened over the last several, the, happened last week that drew this attention. Now, earlier today, uh, the, the provided more information from his office through the Capitol Hill's attending physician, Brian Monahan, who indicated that he had consulted with neurologists who had talked to Senator McConnell, who had examined Senator McConnell, and after some results and looking at his MRI imaging as well as some brain scans, had determined that seizure was not the reason for his pause, neither was uh, stroke or any other major health issues like Parkinson's. But that is not what Mitch McConnell discussed on the Senate floor. Instead, pointing to what he did over the recess and what the Senate has to do in the weeks ahead. Now, one particular moment of my time back home has received its fair share of attention in the press over the past week. But I assure you, August was a busy and productive month for me and my staff back in the Commonwealth. So the question now will be, how does do senators respond to this as well? McConnell will be meeting with his leadership team in just a matter of moments. He's spoken to several of them over the phone over the last several days, Jake, and he will meet with his full Republican conference tomorrow. All right, Manu Raju, thanks so much. With us now is Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He's a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, Senator, thanks for joining us. So after uh, Leader McConnell's first freezing incident back in July, you told CNN that you felt that he was still very much in control of the Republican caucus. Now after this latest freezing episode, uh, we did hear some Republicans express concern and want to have more transparency about his health. Uh, Do you still have the same level of confidence in McConnell's ability to, to... uh, lead his caucus in the Senate? Well, it's, it's no secret that I don't agree with the decisions that Senator McConnell makes on behalf of his caucus, but it appears to me that these are still pretty isolated incidents. Um, there was this letter from the House physician, to, from the attending physician today, ruling out some other perhaps more serious diagnoses. I've had the chance to interact with Senator McConnell and find him to be you know, very much still um, in charge of that caucus. So my hope is that these are isolated instances, and I think it's a decision that his caucus is going to have to make as to whether he continues. Uh, it certainly appears that he can continue to be able to do that job. 
The federal government is scheduled to, to shut down in less than a month unless a funding bill is passed by September 30th. Um, the, the sides that are negotiating are not on the same page, maybe not even in the same book. Uh, are you confident that even a short-term spending bill could be passed to at least keep the government open through the end of the year? I'm not confident of anything given this House Republican majority. They seem to be making it up as they go along from day to day, adding demands as hours tick by. What I know is that in the Senate, we have already advanced every single appropriations bill for every single department with bipartisan support. So the Appropriations Committee has voted all of the appropriations bills to the floor. Every single one of those bills had the majority of Democrats and Republicans supporting them. And so we've shown that even in this fraught political climate, even with a lot of right-wingers in the Senate Republican conference, we can get bipartisan agreement on this budget. So no, I'm not confident that these arsonists in charge of the House Republican conference will agree to anything. But what I know is that there's a template for how you get a bipartisan deal done the Senate Appropriations Committee has shown how to do that. Even passing a short-term spending bill could still be a problem for uh, House Speaker McCarthy as some um, hardline Republicans are, are threatening to oppose any rule if the bill falls short of their demands. Some want the White House's request for supplemental spending on Ukraine aid to be separate uh, entirely from the short-term spending bill. Uh, is there any room for compromise on, on that issue, you think? I hope that the House Republicans don't abandon Ukraine. Um, they are in need of additional assistance. Just in the last four days, they have started to make substantial progress. And if the story of the next 30 days, right as Ukraine is making progress on the front lines, is that the Republicans in charge of the House of Representatives are contemplating abandoning Ukraine, that has implications for the freedom of Ukraine. And I would argue the freedom of the transatlantic alliance. So I hope that we will hold fast um, to our decision, our collective decision to continue to fund Ukraine. And that means including some additional funding for Ukraine in this supplemental request that will likely be attached to a continuing agreement for funding the federal government. There's a new CNN poll out today showing that uh, Republican voter support for Trump is holding uh, fewer than half are seriously worried that his criminal charges are going to harm his chances in 2024. What do you think President Biden should take away from this as he prepares to possibly face Trump in a rematch? I, I just think Trump is going to be their candidate. I, I don't know that I wish for that. I know that that's probably a good political outcome for Democrats, but the country is going to suffer having to sort of go through another election with Donald Trump as a mainstream candidate. Um, ultimately, I don't think Trump picks up any additional support beyond what he had in 2020. I don't think anything that he has done over the last four years has convinced Americans that didn't want to keep him in government to hand government back to him. So I, I, I know that it's probably the best candidate that Biden could run against, but I think it's bad for the nation if Donald Trump stays at the center of our politics. Not only a majority of voters, but a majority of Democrats in a separate poll last week suggested that they thought Joe Biden was too old to be president, just didn't have the sharpness and the faculties to do the job anymore. He's obviously the oldest person ever to hold the job. He's 80 years old right now, I believe. He'd be 82 if he were inaugurated and uh, in for another term, uh, are all those Americans, 77% of the American people, wrong? 
Well, I read that poll too, and I just think we have to do a better job of explaining to the American people um, the job that Joe Biden is doing. I, listen, I think it'd be legitimate to question any candidate's age if there's evidence that that is having a bearing on the quality of the job that is being done. But we are in a full employment economy with wages growing. We have a reputation that is improving all around the world. Joe Biden has an unparalleled streak of legislative successes, even on the toughest issues out there like guns. I just don't think there's evidence to show that Joe Biden isn't doing the job. In fact, there's evidence to suggest that he's getting more achievement and accomplishment than any other first-term president in our political lifetime. So, yeah, I get it that people uh, register in these polls a concern about a candidate's age when they hit the age that the president is. But in this case, um, 80 years old is not slowing Joe Biden down. He's doing a pretty exceptional job, and we just have to explain that to the American people. First Lady Jill Biden tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, we obviously hope she's doing okay and wish her a speedy recovery. We've asked for more details on whether the president was with his wife when she began showing COVID symptoms. He has not changed his busy schedule. Just today he presented uh, the Medal of Honor to an 81-year-old Army Captain, Larry Taylor, uh, who was awarded, I believe, the Silver Star in Vietnam. Um, what, what do you make a, a, of that choice? Was that a, an unnecessary health risk? Well, I think that if, as leaders, we say that everybody needs to follow CDC guidelines, then we need to follow CDC guidelines. And that means not applying a different standard. And right now, the CDC guidelines say that even if you've been around somebody who has had COVID, if you're not showing symptoms and if you don't test positive, then you don't need to interrupt your daily schedule. And so uh, I think the president is doing exactly what the CDC says he should do. That's what I've done. Um, since the, the worst of this crisis has passed, and I don't think I have any different recommendation for him. You just had COVID too, right? I just had it as, uh, as well, and so I'm following CDC guidelines. I'm not wearing a mask as I'm talking to you, but I'm try I've been trying to wear a mask even after I've been outside of that five-day window. All right. Hope you're feeling better. Democratic Thanks. Senator Chris Murphy, appreciate it. Appreciate it. Coming up, more new developments in that Georgia election subversion case. What to expect at a hearing now set for tomorrow, a hearing... That will be televised, plus a twist in the Murdoch family murders that South Carolina attorney convicted of killing his wife and son. His own lawyers say new evidence in, in the case is worthy of a new trial. And we're back with our Law and Justice lead. A critical hearing in the Georgia elections case has been set for tomorrow. Judge Scott McAfee, who is... Uh, overseeing the case, says the hearing will address scheduling for the trial and possibly breaking up the case. CNN senior legal affairs correspondent uh, Paula Reed joins me along with CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangel. I, I might have missed, is it McAfee or McAfee? Do we, do we know how to pronounce the judge's name? It's McAfee. McAfee, okay, good. Uh, what will you be watching? It's, these are all new names. So we're <laughs> there, all... there are new names and the judges keep changing it. The magistrate right. judge, the real judge. Look, it's not just me who will be watching. Everyone can watch. So shout out to the state of Georgia for having cameras in court, right? Everyone can watch this process play out. And we know the big theme tomorrow is timing. Scheduling, not incredibly sexy, but it's the biggest theme in this case. It matters. Right. Trump wants to delay this until after the election. Prosecutors want to move it quickly. And you have 19 defendants here. 19. And Fonnie Willis has said that she wants to try them all at once. Two of them, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesborough, have both said that they want to sever. They want to have their own cases to move this along more quickly. So tomorrow I'm watching to see 
what the prosecutor says, what the district attorney Fannie Willis says when the judge says, look, what's your good faith estimate of how long it's going to take you to do this with 19 people? Because that's what she's expected to come to court with tomorrow. I'm going to be fascinated, not only to be able to see this play out on TV, but also how exactly she intends to do this with 19 defendants. I mean, it's just... That's really hard to imagine. There is a chance, obviously, that Mr. Trump uh, and some of the others could have their cases moved to federal court, in which case they would not be televised. But if that doesn't happen, all of them would be televised. Right. So the Georgia cases would be televised. Tomorrow... I'm not so excited because none of the defendants will be there, but we will see. That would see, be better. We will, yeah. see, we will see the judge. And, and if this happens in the Georgia court, I think it is a real question whether this makes a difference. We've seen Trump's poll numbers, our poll today, going up despite these foreign Only among Republicans. And Republican-leaning independents. Is that the, true with yeah, them, too? The, 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 numbers, the, the numbers have at least held. But... It's very different to see a courtroom in action. Go back and think about when we saw even just the still shot of Donald Trump in the New York courtroom when when he was in Georgia. It is different to see a trial in real time, I think, although with Donald Trump, you never know. Uh, And, Paul, I want to turn back to your exclusive reporting earlier in the show. It's notable that the special counsel's investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election results is continuing even after Trump has been indicted. Uh, Do you think we we could see special counsel Smith file more charges in this case, possibly against, for example, uh, Sidney Powell, the lawyer? Well, it's only possible. We know the January 6th indictment was narrowly tailored. It was just focused on former President Trump. It is designed to be possible, right, to bring this entire case before the 2024 election. But prosecutors also mentioned six co-conspirators. And it's interesting because we've identified at least five of them, and that shortlist is the same shortlist that we as reporters covering this for the past few years had as the people who were most likely to be charged based on the evidence we knew investigators were getting. That includes people like John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, and Sidney Powell. So what we've known for years uh, that investigators have gathered, and now this new reporting from Zach Cohen and I, that over the past few weeks they've been asking very specific questions of multiple witnesses about Sidney Powell, suggests that, yes, it is possible there could be additional charges, but only Jack Smith knows for sure. And we still don't know who that sixth person is, the sixth co-conspirator? As of the last story on CNN.com that I read right before I came up here because I was off for 10 days, no, but there might have been an update I missed. And, I and, think I know who it is, but we didn't know it well enough to report. And, and you talked about how uh, the, all these legal cases have helped uh, Trump consolidate right. Republicans and Republican-leaning independents. What about independents in general and the electorate in general? So what we've seen thus far is that the cases, the investigations are helping Trump. The question is, when the trials start, will that have an impact? Thus far, we're not seeing that. But bottom line, I've spoken to both uh, Democrats and Republicans, political sources. Senator Murphy, who you just spoke to, seemed to think that this would be a good opponent for, for uh, President Biden to have Trump. The sources I talk to think that Trump is a serious opponent for Biden. They take it very seriously. They point to the fact that this is a handful of battleground states, very few votes, a couple thousand votes in a handful of states could make uh, a difference. That said, we're a year away. Right. And the poll is a snapshot in time. 
And there's always perhaps an October surprise, not this October, but, but or maybe both. October. Right. And, and also uh, with all these co-defendants in Georgia and unindicted, unnamed co-conspirators in the federal case, uh, we might start to see people turning on Trump. And in fact, in some of the legal findings, we are seeing that, right? Yeah, across the cases, you are seeing people like a, a tech, technology employee down at Mar-a-Lago, you see Tavares now changing his story, uh, not so much on the Trump team. You're also seeing people just as a point of strategy, right? There's some GOP operatives in the Fulton County case who are saying, we did everything at Trump's direction. But part of that's just a strategy to get this removed to federal court. It's not necessarily flipping. But look, I'm watching as this Georgia case moves on. 19 defendants, right? People will likely start actually flipping on the former president, particularly people uh, who he is not helping pay their legal bills. So we know he's headlining a fundraiser for Rudy Giuliani. Keep your friends close, your co-defendants closer. All right, Jamie Gangale and Paula Reed, thanks so much. Coming up, could there soon be a new trial for Alec Murdoch, the former South Carolina attorney in prison, convicted of killing his wife and son? His defense team just spoke the new evidence that they say should change circumstances in this case. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And we're back with our Law and Justice lead in the push for a new trial for Alec Murdoch. You might remember him. He's the South Carolina man convicted of killing his wife and son. Today, Murdoch's attorneys filed a motion with the South Carolina Court of Appeals alleging jury tampering by the clerk of the courts among their claims that the clerk told jurors not to be, quote, fooled by Murdoch's testimony in his own defense. CNN's Diane Gallagher is in Columbia, South Carolina for us. And Diane, Murdoch's lawyers allege that this clerk betrayed her oath in the hope for money and fame. The pursuit of a book deal and television appearances, that is the motivation theory presented in this 65-page filing, uh, this motion today by the defense attorneys for convicted murderer Alec Murdoch. They say that Colleton County Clerk of Court Rebecca Becky Hill, you may remember, she read off those guilty, these guilty verdicts returned by the jury back in March uh, to the entire world as they watch. Well, they say that she also tampered with the jury. Now, again, these are just allegations, but they're very serious and they can bombshell allegations, really. They claim that the clerk of court tampered with the jury by advising them not to believe Murdoch's testimony and other evidence that was presented by the defense, pressuring them to reach a quick guilty verdict and even misrepresenting a critical and material information to the trial judge in her campaign to remove a juror she believed to be favorable to the defense. Now, we have reached out to Becky Hill. She is not 
overturn any comment responding to this motion. But the filing does include two sworn affidavits, one from a juror, one from a juror that was dismissed. And again, very serious allegations in here. The defense attorney say that initially the jurors did not want to speak with them, but that changed after Becky Hill's book was published last month. In the aftermath of the verdict, we um, had received information that that we needed to look into what happened in the jury room. Um, we uh, started down that road and and we met a zone of silence. When the clerk of court wrote her book, published her book, that zone of silence collapsed and jurors were upset about that, the ones we talked with, and they were more than willing to come forward and tell us the things <clears throat> that that we had sort of heard through a whisper campaign. Now, again, we have reached out to Becky Hill for comment. South Carolina Attorney General Alan Wilson also releasing a statement saying that the state is currently reviewing the defense's latest motion. The defense team also sent a letter, Jake, to the U.S. attorney here in South Carolina asking for an urgent federal investigation into these allegations of jury tampering because the Colleton County court, clerk of court is an elected official. They said that their client, Alec Murdoch, who is currently serving two consecutive life sentences, for the murder of his wife and son. They said that he was astonished by these revelations. All right, Diane Gallagher in Columbia, South Carolina for us. Thanks so much. Let's talk about this with trial attorney Misty Maris. Uh, Misty, if it's true that the clerk of the court, Rebecca Hill, told the jurors not to be, quote, fooled by Murdoch's testimony in his own defense, um, if it's true that she said that and that did, in fact, play a role in pressuring the jury to come to any sort of quick decision and that she did it for a book deal. Is that grounds for a mistrial? Jake, it is incredibly problematic. And if true, it would be strong grounds to throw out this verdict and get a new trial. There's a long road ahead, though, because, of course, these are allegations. So the first step is when there's credible allegations like what we've seen here and the defense is trying to show that credibility by virtue of these juror affidavits that were attached to the filing, that triggers an evidentiary hearing. And at that hearing, these allegations would be explored. Evidence would be presented. There would be testimony. It's like a mini trial. And at that point, there's a determination about whether or not those comments constitute harmless error. And harmless error means that it wouldn't have mattered for the outcome. But when you're talking about an official, an elected official, commenting on the veracity of evidence, whether or not to believe testimony, that is absolutely central to the defense of the case. So if true, there are very strong grounds to overturn this verdict. I mean, if, if true, it sounds remarkably <laughs> unprofessional. Um, the motion cites at least three sworn affidavits, two from jurors, one from a dismissed juror, as well as excerpts from Ms. Hill's book as evidence for this case. Would you call that compelling evidence? Would a it, judge? So it is compelling enough. I don't see how there isn't this evidentiary hearing because, of course, with allegations, there's the, the prosecution has now the burden of proof to refute them should there be this hearing. But, Jake, to your point, this is not just unprofessional, if true. It's potentially criminal. It's most certainly grounds for a huge problem in the from, from a work perspective, from an elected official perspective. But it could even go beyond that, because remember, the jury is instructed by the judge every single day. 
You cannot communicate about this case with anyone, no third party. Now you have allegations that somebody in a position of power, a court clerk acting under, as the defense says, the color of state is telling the jurors what evidence they should consider and whether or not the defendant should be believed. Quite frankly, if it's true, it's stunning. And it would most certainly warrant further investigation, not just with respect to the trial from the evidentiary hearing, but also potentially on the state or federal level from a criminal perspective. So if this were to result in the case being thrown out and then there was another trial, which I assume they would they would put him on trial again, um, would they be able to find an impartial jury, do you think? It's going to be really tough. You have to go through this whole voir dire process, something that has always been uh, the law in these high profile cases. We've covered many together. Just the fact that something is high profile does not mean that a jury is automatically biased or prejudiced. There's just a more stringent and deep dive in that voir dire process. But remember, Jake, if this this is to be overturned and we have a new trial, it's what's called de novo. You truly start from scratch. There could be different evidence. Would Murdaugh testify again? That's really one of the critical questions. Now, we're far away from that because we first have to go through this process of the evidentiary hearing. That motion has to be granted. And then the inquiry about whether or not that this actually constitute harmful error, uh, whether or not it's true. All of that needs to be explored. But if true, we could really see a brand new trial And who knows how that would play out. So this was truly a bombshell today. A stunning turn of events. Misty Maris, thank you so much. Appreciate it. A manhunt intensifying for that inmate who escaped from that Pennsylvania prison in Chester County. One man who lives in the search area says the fugitive broke into his house. Hear his encounter with the convicted killer next. In our national lead, a game of cat and mouse is now escalating between hundreds of law enforcement officers and one very dangerous, very missing escaped inmate. Police today widening the search perimeter for Danello Cavalcante one day after saying they had him contained within a two-mile area near Chester County Prison west of Philadelphia. CNN's Danny Freeman shares new surveillance images of Cavalcante and explores how this convicted murderer managed to evade capture now for six days, leaving a community on edge. The manhunt for escaped Pennsylvania inmate Danello Cavalcante is intensifying. He's clearly in escape mode, but he's desperate. Pennsylvania State Police expanding their initial search perimeter after a sixth sighting of the convicted murderer. Police say these nighttime photos show Cavalcante walking past trail cameras Monday night. The photos confirm that Cavalcante has not changed his appearance, but also that he has obtained a backpack, a duffel sling-type pack, and a hooded sweatshirt. But authorities say they do not know where Cavalcante picked up the new supplies. The images were captured at the popular tourist destination, Longwood Gardens, a sprawling site with more than 200 acres of gardens, meadows, and trails, adding to the already challenging terrain in the area. What you have, though, are significant parcels of wooded area with a lot of undergrowth, so thick that um, our searchers can't be more than a couple of yards apart or they, uh, at times, lose sight of one another. The search has now expanded about five miles south of the Chester County prison where Cavalcante escaped last Thursday. The latest sighting causing two school districts in the area to shut down for the day. 
Police helicopters circling the area are now playing a recorded message from Cavalcante's mother urging him to surrender as the community remains on edge. I woke up my wife, I said, hey, I think there might be somebody downstairs. Ryan Drummond lives in the area and says last Friday, Cavalcante came into his house while his family was sleeping. What I decided to do was flip the light switch on and off, you know, three or four or five times, pause, and then he flipped the light switch from downstairs three or four times, which was the moment of like, oh my God, this guy is down there. Thankfully, Ryan says he only took food and then left. Police urging residents to stay vigilant as the manhunt continues. He will slip up. He did here. He walked into a trail cam, didn't know it. He'll slip up. We're making him move, and that's a good thing. And Jake, Pennsylvania State Police estimate there are well over 200 officers now participating in this manhunt. That includes new resources from both the FBI and from U.S. Customs and Border Protection. All of these officers hoping for a peaceful resolution here. Jake. All right. Danny Freeman in Westchester. Thanks so much. Coming up next, the latest that we're learning about a possible meeting between Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un. What could Russia want from North Korea when it comes to weapons? Stay with us. Topping our world lead, a meeting that the United States government definitely does not want to happen. The governments of Russia and North Korea are, quote, actively advancing negotiations for an arms deal, according to the U.S. State Department. Another top U.S. official says it may be a sign of how much a failure Russia's war on Ukraine has been. And now the world is speculating where and when a Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin meetup might take place. The New York Times reports Kim will likely travel by armored train to the Russian city of Vladivostok, just north of North Korea's border. CNN's Paula Hancox lays out what the notorious nations might get out of their ends of the deal. The first and last meeting between the current leaders of Russia and North Korea was more than four years ago. Since then, Russian President Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine and his military efforts are faltering. So for Kim Jong-un, the power dynamics have changed. A large power is now dependent on him. That hasn't happened in a while. Um, The second thing he gains is the possibility of access to more oil. At the moment that Kim Jong-un is testing his ballistic missiles, particularly the long-range ones, many of which have design commonalities with Russian missiles, he can get a lot of help there. U.S. officials believe Moscow could receive multiple types of munitions from Pyongyang in any arms deal, which could be used on the front lines in Ukraine. The Biden administration believes North Korea already delivered infantry rockets and missiles for use by Russian mercenary force Wagner late last year. Russia and North Korea have something in common, interoperability of conventional weapons. For example, North Korea's 152mm artillery ammunition and 122mm multiple rocket launcher ammunition can be used on Russian weapons immediately. U.S. officials assess Kim Jong-un may travel to Russia to meet Vladimir Putin this month. There is an Eastern Economic Forum in Vladivostok next week. Letters of support have been exchanged between the two leaders. 
Russia's defense minister Sergei Shoigu was given the red carpet treatment by Kim in Pyongyang in July. The North's military capabilities were on full display. And South Korea's intelligence agency says a second Russian delegation visited at the start of August. By August 8th, a Russian plane is believed to have transferred unknown military supplies from Pyongyang, no evidence or destination given. Pyongyang and Moscow deny any potential arms deal. Kim is becoming more paranoid than normal over the last four or five years. And so for him, this alliance achieves, makes him look less isolated. It provides a psychological boost for him and his inner circle. Now, there's a lot that both countries stand to gain from this, Jake, not just militarily, but also politically, united by a common enemy, the United States. Jake. Paula Hancock's in South Korea for us. Thanks so much. An important exclusive interview coming up next on The Lead. Three secretaries from three branches of the U.S. military, all of them here in studio with a united front calling out Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville and his hold on all military nominations. Stay with us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, an historic moment for Republican politics in Texas, holding impeachment hearings for one of their own, the state's attorney general, Ken Paxton. His not guilty plea today as the trial got underway for the firebrand Trump ally accused of abusing his power, bribery, and corruption. Plus, inside the lawsuit threat by ex or Twitter owner Elon Musk, his baseless claim that the Anti-Defamation League statements against hate speech is tanking revenue on his site, but should Musk turn the mirror toward himself? But leading this hour, secretaries from three branches of the U.S. military are all here on the lead for an exclusive in-studio interview. For the first time in history, three branches of the U.S. military are operating without Senate-confirmed leaders or chiefs of staff. 300 more top nominees are also on hold, all because of this one lawmaker, Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville, and his objection to the Pentagon's new policy, which reimburses service members or their families for travel if they have to go to another state to get an abortion. After six months of frustrating paralysis, the secretaries of the Army and the Navy and the Air Force wrote this opinion piece in the Washington Post, quote, officers in the millions of service members they lead are the foundation of America's enduring military advantage, yet this foundation is being actively eroded by the actions of a single U.S. Senator, Tommy Tuberville, and it is putting our national security at risk. So joining us now, the secretaries of the Air Force, Frank Kendall of the Army, Christine Wormuth, and the Navy, Carlos Del Toro, for this exclusive joint interview. Um, let me start with you, Secretary Kendall. How is America less safe and less prepared than it was six months ago? First of all, we are safe and we are prepared. But what Senator Tuberville is doing is doing significant damage to our national, our national security. He has put on hold, as you said, hundreds of officers. Uh, each summer, we move a large fraction of our general officers into new positions. We promote many of them. 
Right now, that is all in limbo. So we have acting people basically serving in roles, in many cases doing more than one job at the same time, because we can't move the person that we've nominated into that position. It's having a major impact on those people and on their families. So, Secretary Del Toro, the Navy is facing, obviously, a lot of challenges. We have the aggression of China in the Pacific, uh, Iran in the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, We saw today in the New York Times an article about how uh, the Navy is struggling with modernizing the fleet. How are these holds keeping you uh, from doing your job? Oh, Jake, you're absolutely right. Our, Our nation faces serious threats throughout the globe. And I believe that we have a responsibility as government leaders to put our most experienced individuals, nominate them, and have them confirmed in positions that they can actually lead our service members across the country. And I would argue that Tommy Tuberville, what he's actually doing is he's playing Russian roulette with the very lives of our service members by denying them the opportunity to actually have the most experienced combat leaders in those positions to lead them in times of peace and in times of combat. And Secretary Wormuth, uh, this blanket hold, uh, obviously, in addition to affecting the national security issues that you describe, it also affects uh, service members and their families, uh, many of whom are in limbo, needing to move. They all already, you know, their lives are, they're constantly moving. Um, Their spouses, uh, I want you to take a listen to this military spouse who is a member of the Secure Families Initiative. Every single time that we would move, I'd have to make sure that at our new duty station, we had water and electricity and gas and sewage and trash pickup. I'd have to enroll my kids in school. I'd have to find new doctors and orthodontists and dentists and eye doctors. I'd have to make sure that our car registration and our voter registration were updated. And the thing is, I didn't always agree with every single policy that the military had or every single action that they were engaged in. But I did it anyway because I made a commitment to my spouse, my family, and my country. You know, I can uh, I absolutely relate to what that person is saying. And I can think of an example right now. I have a general officer who was supposed to move into a new house associated with their new position. And that service member was going to move their aging mother into that house with them so that they could care for them. Because that move isn't happening, they are paying $10,000 a month right now to keep the aging parent in an assisted living facility. That is the kind of consequence that's happening. And these are service members who have literally put their lives on the line for Americans for the last 20 years. And Secretary Kendall, today, Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder attempted to put uh, the effect of these holds in terms that the public and maybe Tuberville himself, who I don't think served, uh, could understand. He's a former uh, football coach. Uh, He compared this to having an acting football coach who didn't have real powers. uh, Take a listen. In the short, short term, They're likely going to make things happen because that's what good leaders do. Uh, But what happens when performance on the field becomes impacted over time? How are you going to deal with the uncertainty of uh, within the coaching staff and the locker room in terms of who's in charge? How are we going to affect performance? And then who are the fans going to hold accountable? Of course, it's a lot more serious than that. It's not about who beats Alabama on Saturday, right? It's much more serious. Let me give you an example of how serious it is. The people who are our potential adversaries are paying attention to this. One of my uh, general officers from the Air Force uh, was recently at an embassy event here in Washington where a colonel from the People's Liberation Army of China taunted him about the, the way our democracy was working. Our, our potential adversaries are paying attention to this and is affecting how they view the United States and our military capabilities and support for the military. 
this needs to stop. You know, Jake, someone, forgive me, for someone who was born in a communist country, I would have never imagined that actually one of our own senators would actually be aiding and abetting communist and other autocratic regimes around the world. This is having a real negative impact and will continue to have a real negative impact on our combat readiness. And that's what the American people truly need to understand. And, and uh, Senator Tuberville released a statement that said in part, this is two weeks ago, I will continue this process of oversight and I will announce my opposition to specific nominees uh, in the weeks ahead. Do you know who he might be referring to? No, I don't know specifically who he is referring to, but we've seen some um, Twitter accounts or X accounts, you know, I think, who are sympathetic to Senator Tuberville calling out individual general officers for their support, for example, of things like equity and inclusion in the ranks. And, you know, whether one agrees with that or not, it is just unprecedented to be attacking apolitical general officers and flag officers uh, in this way. It is you know, it is taking our apolitical military institution, that's a, that's a core principle of our constitutional democracy, and eroding its foundations. You know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I've, I've been a journalist in this town for a long time, and I'm just trying to imagine if during the Bush years, uh, when a lot of Democrats really opposed the Iraq War, if Democrats had done this to the military then, which any one senator, I suppose, could have, the accusations of lack of patriotism that we would have heard from conservatives. Um, but I haven't, maybe, I, maybe, I, maybe I've missed it, but I just haven't heard anything. That's exactly right, Jake. I mean, I served in uniform for 26 years in the United States Navy under six different presidents, three Republicans, three Democrats. We have never seen another situation like this. And it's having a real impact on our service members who demand the trust of all the American people. Tommy Tuberville has to stop this hold on our nominees moving forward. It's relatively routine for political appointees like ourselves to be put on hold pending a confirmation. It is totally unprecedented to do this to our professional military officers. You know, the hundreds of people and their families and all the others affected by this have nothing to do with this policy. Uh, This is not going to be an effective tactic, and it's a terrible precedent for other situations. And it's not just the immediate consequences. It's all of the colonels, lieutenant colonels, even majors who are looking at how the general officers are being treated and what their families are going through. I really worry that a lot of those officers who volunteer are going to walk away and basically say, I don't want to deal with this. If this is what it takes to be a general officer, I don't want to do this. Well, it's interesting because uh, one of the bond rating agencies just downgraded the U.S. because of uh, their analysis that the U.S. government is just so dysfunctional. Uh, in terms of like being able to solve the long-term debt problems, we have this government shutdown coming down, which might affect uh, military paychecks coming coming up. I wonder if this is, and we talk about the, the uh, recruiting problems that the military has. This can't help that. Well, you're absolutely right, Jake. And as you said, you know, national security is not a football game. And the American people need to stand up and, and complain about what's going on because we need to actually turn this around as quickly as possible. Final thoughts? Well, I hope, frankly, that Senator Tuberville and a lot of his peers in the Senate heard from their voters when they were out on recess. That's part of why we timed the op-ed when we did. It's Congress is coming back into recess, and I hope a lot of Americans have said enough is enough. Well, I think the point that you made, sir, uh, that this, this isn't about political appointees. No. This is about generals, admirals, colonels, lieutenant colonels, majors, people who have devoted their lives right. to, to serving this country, they're the ones and their families, their poor Blue Star families who are being affected. And to suggest that uh, these admirals and generals did not <clears throat> fight is completely wrong. 
These are the same individuals who for 20 years actually defended our national security in Iraq, Afghanistan, and throughout the globe. They deserve our respect. And more importantly, the current service members who serve in all our services demand to have the best leadership to guide them and lead them in combat and during times of peace. Secretary uh, Christine Wormuth and Secretary uh, Frank Kendall and Secretary Carlos Del Toro, thanks one and all uh, for being here. We should note that we reached out to Alabama Senator Tuberville's office for an interview. Uh, He declined. We're standing by for a prison sentence for Enrico Tarrio, the so-called chairman of the Proud Boys, and his role in the January 6th attack. Prosecutors are pushing for 33 years. We'll see what the judge decides. Plus, the threat of a defamation lawsuit from Elon Musk. He claims without any evidence that we've seen that statements by the Anti-Defamation League have been hurting revenue on X, the site formerly known as Twitter. But is this just an empty threat? In our tech lead, Elon Musk says he's threatening to sue the Anti-Defamation League for lost revenue at X, the website formerly known as Twitter. Musk claims, without any evidence that we've seen, that the ADL statements about rising hate speech on the platform are the reason why there is, has been a 60% decrease in advertising on X. The ADL and other organizations have noted the increase in hate speech on the platform since Musk took over and removed much of the content moderation. A spokesman for the ADL responded to Musk's threat, quote, the ADL is unsurprised yet undeterred that anti-Semites, white supremacists, conspiracy theorists, and other trolls have launched a coordinated attack on our organization. This type of thing is nothing new, unquote. This is not the first time Musk has threatened to take legal action against his opponents and critics. Last month, he sued the Center for Countering Digital Hate, a nonprofit group whose research found that hate speech on X has risen dramatically under Musk's ownership. Kara Swisher, the host of the podcast On with Kara Swisher, among others, joins me now. Kara, thanks so much for being here. So he, he, Elon Musk uh, later said, quote, to be super clear, I'm pro-free speech, but against anti-Semitism of any kind. Never really a good sign when you have to clarify to people yeah, that you're right. against anti-Semitism. Right, right, no. But it, it, it's just empirically true, mm-hmm. and this is part of his free speech position, when you take this what he calls a purist free speech position, it's although, it's, it's, although it's not real. Uh, he's, he blocks free speech he doesn't like. Yes. Um, but he allows anti-Semitism to, to flourish. I mean, we've all, we've all seen it. Right. Well, he uses the First Amendment as a Swiss Army knife. Whatever it suits him, he'll right. do it in a way. He'll either block people or cut people off or sue people or say he's for free speech. It's sort of, it's his cloak that is, is everybody can see through. It's transparent. And so... Um, you know, it's threatening to groups like ADL or a lot of these academic groups. I used to talk to all of them, and they're very nervous to talk because, or, or do reports. It's, it has a chilling effect on these people because they're going to be subject to a lawsuit by the world's richest man. Who The reason advertising is down is because it's a worse platform. That's it. And so, you know, his tactic is... And I hate to say it, it's blame the Jews. That's what he's doing right here. And so that's why everybody's sort of incensed about what he's doing. His tweets are very carefully calibrated to sort of dog whistle to a lot of people and at the same time go, but I'm not an anti-Semite. Right. But he... But he... No one called him that, by the way. Right. Well, I have seen some people call yes, him that. But, but, but the ADL didn't call no, him that. But, but he, um, he... I mean, he, he blamed... The ADL yes. said that they don't speak for Jews, right? He, he suggested they don't speak for Jews. Okay. I mean, anyway. Neither does he, but okay. Sure. Right. Nobody does, but all right. Is it not true, though? Like, I mean, I've been, I, I'm still on X. I'm on several other sites, you too. Are. But is it not true that he regularly engages with 
yes, people who are white supremacists and, and anti-Semites, which yeah. sends a signal to people that, like, he is engaging with these people. He, he likes these disengage. people. He, it's actually very jocular. In a lot of, he's let a lot back on. People that had been thrown off, he's let them back on. Um, that Twitter had taken off because of abuses of the platform under their rules. And now he has new rules. And so he's allowed them back on, just like Trump, everybody else. Um, and he engages in sort of this jokey, jokey manner that does not show, hey, um, that might be a problem. Like today, Mark Cuban, who is sort of the polar opposite of Elon Musk in temperament and right. style, uh, was engaging with Stephen Miller and Matt Walsh over their obsession with mo- woke mob. They just seem to be, I guess the Burning Man people set them off for something right. covered with mud. I saw they were attacking some whatever. 29-year-old woman who doesn't yes. have kids. I don't know. I, whatever. Yeah. They have someone to attack every day. Right. Um, and, and so he was engaging in a really interesting way that was debating. And Elon's just going, interesting, exactly, that kind of stuff. So right. it's sort of uh, giving people signals, and that's what people think that he's doing. I think that's what he's doing. So last month, the, C- the new CEO of X, who yeah. Elon Musk had hired to supposedly be yeah. the, the run, run the company, yeah. uh, Linda Yaccarino? Linda Yaccarino. She worked for NBC. Uh, she said that brands were going to come back to X. The company was about to break even. Mm-hmm. It, it, did that happen? Is it profitable? Um, I, 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 no idea. No idea. It wasn't not breaking even before, but the, but the advertising declined rather considerably after Musk got there. He did a lot of layoffs. He insulted advertisers. He threatened them. He then said it was their fault. It's always someone's fault in Elon's world, except for Elon. And that's the problem. And Linda has her hands full. Uh, she's a very professional person. But, you know, some of her statements, you know, everything's great here. There's no problem here. You, you don't, you, it's like being told when you're in a very dangerous city, it's totally safe to walk the streets. Right. It's just, it's just a less pleasant experience. It's very unpleasant. Yeah. That's my, all right. Yeah. Kara Swisher, it's great to see you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Coming up next, he's a Trump supporter. His wife is not. The contrast in one household that is emblematic across the Republican Party right now in a new CNN poll is giving us a good idea of just how wide that divide really is. Did you guys watch? Our politics lead now, our 2024 lead specifically, a new CNN poll shows that Donald Trump is increasing his lead over the rest of the Republican pack. The poll taken after last month's, last month's Republican debate shows Trump at 52% among Republicans and Republican-leading voters. That's 34 points ahead of Governor Ron DeSantis, who's in second place with 18%. The rest of the pack is in single digits. We're going to dig further into the numbers in just a minute. But let's start in New Hampshire, the first of the nation primary state, where many of the candidates in CNN's Jeff Zeleny are listening to the voters. To catch up to Trump, yeah, it's a big climb. Bob Tilton has a front row seat to the Republican presidential contest. He likes a few options, but he loves former President Donald Trump. His wife, Crystal, does not. I think he's had his time and there was enough um, controversy over it and it's time to move on. Their disagreement brings to life a monumental divide inside the Republican Party. They were attacking him constantly. How can anybody do a good job? I mean, he did, but he was constantly attacking. It was all fake. Here in New Hampshire, home to the first in the nation primary, a summertime campaign has given way to a fall fight for survival in a race dominated by signs of Trump's strength. Republican Governor Chris Sununu insists the GOP contest is still competitive. You don't believe that this primary is effectively over? Oh, God, no. Oh, my God, no, not even close. Not even close. Was it over when Clinton was leading Barack Obama by 20 points at this point back in 2008? No one could beat the Clinton machine, remember? No, not, not at all. 
Sununu believes Trump will be unable to win back the White House for Republicans. He points to the general election in New Hampshire, where in 2016, Trump fell short to Hillary Clinton by fewer than 3,000 votes. But four years later, he lost to Joe Biden by nearly 60,000. A big reason, he believes, is independent voters turned away from Trump. Here in New Hampshire, though, I think they'll play a big role. I think a lot of independents will come out and vote in the Republican primary. At a campaign stop for former Vice President Mike Pence, Larry Rocha introduced himself as one of those independents. I was a Republican from the first day I can vote. Many, many years later, I'm, I, I went independent. He later told us he's looking for a candidate who can turn the page from Trump. I'm just waiting for someone to, to, to step up so I can feel comfortable voting for someone, not against someone. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is staking his candidacy entirely on New Hampshire. And this is the state in the country that can get it rolling. His Republican challengers are also urging New Hampshire voters to keep their minds open. Today, Pence had this quip at the ready. Well, what did Indiana Jones say? Never tell me the odds. <laughs> Linda Russell is sizing up the Republican field in hopes of finding a fresh face. We like the thought of either DeSantis or Vivek, someone that's younger. We definitely need younger. Trump's not your first choice at this point. He's not. I mean, I like, yeah, I think everything was great when he was here, but there's just so much baggage with him, and people are going to vote for Biden just because they don't like Trump, and I, we don't need that again. So Trump does loom large in this race. There is no doubt about that. But, Jake, talking to many Republican voters, they see this as far more than a one-man race at this point. Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, she'll be arriving here shortly. Uh, many voters also want to hear what she has to say. Of course, she had a strong showing at that debate late last month. Jake, a little more than five months before New Hampshire voters uh, weigh in here, in conversations with many of them, they're still keeping their minds open. All right. Jake. They're flinty and independent up there, just like we like them. Jeff Zeleny, thanks right. so much. Let's dig into the numbers now in CNN's new poll with CNN political director David Chalian. Uh, so Trump's lead is big and growing. It is. You put up the numbers there. Look at this. This is a snapshot. It's a national poll. Uh, we obviously do this sequentially through states to amass delegates. But by the way, the state polls show a similar narrative here. Donald Trump is the dominant frontrunner in this race. You see there 52 percent to 18 percent with DeSantis. Everyone else in single digits. I, I, I hear that uh, nobody not named Trump would not want to call this a one-man race, but I don't know how you look at those numbers and see at this point in time how it's anything but a one-man race. There does seem at least to be some shuffling around in the, in the back of the pack. Yes, we did see some movement after uh, that first debate. If you look at the numbers from our June poll uh, to where folks are now, you see Trump went up five points. DeSantis went down eight percentage points. Nikki Haley up a couple uh, you see Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy up 5% from 1% to 6%. But what are we talking about here, Jake? I mean, we're, we're talking about people that are still in single digits. And Donald Trump has a majority. You can add up every other number for candidates not named Trump. You still don't get as much as what Donald Trump has. And uh, let's, uh, let's, get, let's look at some of the other uh, factors in, in, the, in the poll. Um, because I want to get your reaction to, to let's bring in the, the rest of the panel here. I'm going to get a reaction to, to two sets of, uh, of numbers. Actually, David, before we do this, show me the impact of what the criminal cases uh, that Trump is facing. What does our polling show? On so that? we right. We in addition to looking at the state of the race, we want to get a sense of how people are responding to these criminal charges. Uh, take a look here. We ask people whether we think seri- that they are seriously concerned that the criminal charges might negatively impact Trump's ability to either serve yeah. a full term or govern effectively. 
take a look. I think the story here, Jake, is if you look at the overall American population, you see that the majorities are seriously concerned that these legal troubles could impact him negatively to serve a full term or be effective as president. 60% of Americans say that. That's in the, the uh, bars on the left of each of those. But if you look maroon. at this, the maroon, if you look at the small red yeah. bars, that's among Republican and Republican leaners. They just don't buy it. They do not buy that his legal troubles are going to impact his ability to serve or govern effectively. And then we ask, what about his ability to win in 2024. And look here, Republicans, 56% of them, so a majority, say no. His legal troubles will not impact his ability to win negatively. But 44%, more than 4 in 10 Republicans and Republican leaners, do think that this will affect his ability to win. I mean, this is why you hear somebody like a Nikki Haley make an electability argument or uh, others on the campaign trail. Uh, there's some market share there for that. But again, the majority position among Republicans, Jake, is that it will not impact his ability to win. All right. Now let's bring in our political experts. Because, uh, uh, Alice, let me start with you. I'm going to get your reaction to two sets of numbers in the polls. One, only 10%, only 10% of Republicans believe Trump is facing so many criminal charges because of his own actions. And 60% of Republicans say Trump faces charges because of political abuse of the justice system. How do you see those numbers? Do you think Republican voters are completely out of touch with reality? Do you think that is the reality? What's your view? Well, they, those that believe that, yes, they are completely out of touch with reality because these indictments are valid. And these are not weaponization of the DOJ. These are not uh, abuse of the political system, even though we're hearing a lot of the challengers saying this is criminaliza- criminalization of the DOJ. There are valid causes for these indictments, without a doubt. But also to your point on, on those uh, questions that were asked, Clearly, Republicans believe these are, are, he's a target of a witch hunt. But you look at the independents and the Democrats. Those are important numbers to look at. When Trump faces uh, many criminal charges because of his own actions, independents, half of them believe it's because of his own actions, and Democrats, almost 83%. But here's a, an interesting cross-tab as well. Trump faces so many criminal charges because of abuse of the system. Independents believe that 25% of them believe this is weaponization of the DOJ. So even independents are buying the malarkey that this is, this is not valid uh, actions on the part of Trump. So those are th- important things to keep track of. But look, we're seeing in these reports and many others his numbers are getting just stronger. And people, Republican voters, they're more focused on the issues and not the indictments. They're focused on how they see him as a president on the economy, crime, education, and, and immigration. They're looking at the issues, and these indictments are not swaying them anyway. Senator Murphy, uh, Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, uh, suggested that uh, Trump being the nominee will make it easier for Democrats to keep the White House. Uh, I don't know that these numbers make that case. I don't either. Uh, The the thing that keeps me up at night is uh, third and fourth party candidates who could eat into Joe Biden's majority. The the path is there. Democrats have averaged 51 percent in every one of the last four presidential elections. They won the popular vote in seven out of the last eight. It's a Democratic country. Okay, the majority of Americans want Democrats in the White House. But and and Trump will get to 45, no sweat nationally, not just in the party. He's already 53 in the party. He'll get to 45 easily. His climb from 45 to 50 is insurmountable. But he could win at 45. He could if Joe Biden's majority is eaten into by a Dr. Cornell West who's running as a, as, as a green, maybe no labels runs as a moderate. Third and fourth party candidates could really eat into this. That's, that's what ought to be keeping the Biden team up at night. It's not even just the threat of Trump per se, 
but that third and fourth party candidates can eat into the majority that does not want Trump. Alice, our, our poll shows that former President Trump is far and away the number one choice. It's not a two-man race with DeSantis. It's a one-man race with a whole bunch of others uh, trailing him. Is there any scenario you see in which Donald Trump does not just coast to the Republican nomination? A lot of it could depend on what happens in these criminal cases. And look, to, as David pointed out, Donald Trump is at 52 percent more than all the other candidates combined. And that is, you know, by all intents and purposes at this stage of the game, insurmountable. We still have four months to go. I'm interested to see what happens in these cases, specifically Georgia. If something were to happen and this were to start uh, before people start voting and these are televised, that will make a big difference. Mm. And we're seeing tomorrow supposed to be a big day in Georgia with people uh, entering their pleas. We're seeing reports that some of these people are flipping. They're going to turn on Donald Trump and present information where they were told they were forced to do so. And look, I know a lot of these people in Fulton County that are these co-conspirators or unnamed co-conspirators from Atlanta. I know these people. They worked so hard and did so much to curry favor with Donald Trump and the Republican Party. These are the kind of people that would throw their mama in a whorehouse to get politically advanced. Now they're looking at this is real. They're not going to the big house or the poor house for Donald Trump. And as they speak up, that might impact Donald Trump. Can I just interject? He is entitled to presumption of innocence. And maybe a felony conviction will change it. I don't think so. And here's why. 119 days ago, a federal court in New York found him liable for sexual abuse of E. Jean Carroll. This is not a presumption of innocence anymore. This is a legal rendering Mm -hmm. where he was found liable for sexual abuse. The judge in the case said in the common, it's not legally rape in New York. It's important to to state that. It was a civil court, right? It was a civil court. But he said in the common usage of the word, that's what this was. He, he said he could shoot a man on Fifth Avenue and not lose any votes. He was speaking figuratively. He has been found to sexually abuse a woman on Fifth Avenue in a department store, and he didn't lose a single point. That was 119 in May, Dave. We've had two polls since then. He's, he's gotten a little bit stronger even since then. So I, my faith in Republican primary voters to look at the justice system and believe it will hold Trump accountable or to believe the justice system when they find him liable for sexual abuse. David, uh, astonishing. go ahead. I, the one thing I just wanted to ask you, when it comes to polls, when it comes to fundraising, when it comes to uh, political teams, is there anyone you see not named Trump best positioned to give him a strong challenge? Well, obviously, DeSantis has been having trouble, and we, we have to wait and see if that can be turned around at all. He clearly has the funding with a uh, well-funded super PAC in his organization. Uh, let's see if Hantley can make hay of a well-perceived uh, uh, debate performance. But Jake, we're talking about just different universes right now of strength of candidacy. So I can find lots of interesting things about these candidates not named Trump. And if I worked for them, could find the things that they should go on TV and talk about that's positive for them in this poll. But it doesn't upend where we are in this race right now. And I would just also note Donald Trump's support is so sticky. 83% of Trump supporters say there's no way they're changing their mind. They are with Donald Trump. 54% of DeSantis supporters say that about him. Everyone else less so. So even when we're looking at that horse race, we ask folks, even if you support them now, what about would you consider this candidate? Combine them together. Donald Trump is still ahead. So we see a third of Republicans say their mind could be changed. But even among that group, Two-thirds of them either support Trump or are open to supporting him. So that's the kind of dominance and commitment uh, his supporters have for him in this race. Right well, now. you talk about different universes. I mean, one of the things that's going on here is that there are different information universes. And these first two debates are being uh, hosted by Fox uh, and Fox Business. This is, a, this is a 
channel that was forced to pay a $787.5 million defamation uh, settlement because of months and months of lies that they were telling. People think that Trump defies the laws of politics. He doesn't. He has mastered the new information ecosystem, and he knows a lot of... Misinformation. Disinformation. He knows the people he he reaches are not reached by the truth. And it's not something magical about him. It's the new information ecosystem those poor people are trapped in. Thanks, one and all, for being here. The breaking news this hour, the prison sentence expected any moment now for Proud Boys chairman, Enrique Tarrio. We're told the judge in this case is speaking now. Stay with us. In our law and justice lead, as Donald Trump faces four different criminal cases, CNN has exclusive new reporting that the special counsel is continuing to investigate the January 6th case. According to multiple sources, prosecutors asked two recent grand jury witnesses about fundraising efforts off of the baseless claims of voter fraud and how those funds were used to breach voting equipment in states won by President Biden. With me now is Timothy Hafey. He was the top investigator for the House Select Committee investigating January 6th and is a former federal prosecutor. Tim, what do you make of Special Counsel Jack Smith's team honing in on Trump, the Trump team's fundraising efforts? Jake, it's completely predictable. The Special Counsel is using the foundation that the Select Committee laid about this fundraising uh, and building on it. Uh, they're going further than we were able to go because of some of the sort of legal tools that they have, the ability to push through some privilege assertions and get immediate rulings. But this is a real thing. The Trump campaign and some of the Trump attorneys affirmatively misled donors trying to raise money on this false narrative that the election was stolen. And they said that the money raised was going to go to election defense efforts, when in reality it did not. That could be fraud, and that's why the special counsel is interested in those facts. We also know that prosecutors are focusing uh, specifically on former Trump attorney Sidney Powell and her role in all this. You were the top investigator for the select committee on January 6th. Uh, do you think uh, Sidney Powell could face uh, federal charges in this case? She's already facing, I believe, uh, charges in Georgia. Yeah, absolutely. For the same reasons that she's been charged in Georgia. I think the special counsel may very well be looking at charging additional defendants in a separate case. He wants the Trump case to go quickly, likely won't add defendants because it'll slow that down. But he may very well be looking at some of the lawyers who were charged in Georgia. And Jake, the interesting thing about Sidney Powell is that she was very interested in potentially asking the president to sign an executive order that would authorize the U.S. military to seize voting machines. That would require some evidence that a foreign power somehow as a national security threat impacted our election. No evidence of that whatsoever. As Chris Krebs, who is the top official responsible for cybersecurity of elections said. So she was prepared to take this effort, not just to state election officials, but to the, to the president's desk and to the U.S. military. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows today pleaded uh, not guilty to the two charges he's facing in Georgia for violating the Georgia RICO or the racketeering laws and solicitation of violation of an oath by a public officer trying to get a, sub- a public official to violate his oath of office. This is we're waiting to see if Meadows' case is going to be moved to federal court. His argument is he was carrying out the wishes of the president, therefore he was carrying out federal duties. Do you think he has a strong case to move it to federal court? 
Now, look, he's made that argument with respect to attempts to stay out of the grand jury. It's the very same argument that he made with respect to executive privilege, essentially saying since the subject matter is part of my advice and counsel to the president, it's beyond the reach of the legal process. The judge in D.C. rejected that as the judge has rejected many similar claims of privilege. He has a very expansive view of what is what he was doing in his official capacity, that the Georgia prosecutor's response was, this is well beyond official business. This is political. And this is dealing with elections, which is a classic state function. Therefore, the judge, I think, is likely to reject Meadows' claims and in this case stays in state court. All right, Timothy Hafey, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you, Jake. A not guilty plea today from the attorney general of Texas at the start of his impeachment trial. We're going to lay out the case lawyers are making against Ken Paxton and what his defense is saying. That's next. So breaking news just into CNN. A federal judge has just sentenced former Proud Boys chairman Enrique Tarrio. Let's get right to CNN's Evan Pettis at the courthouse. Evan, no cameras in court. What happened? How much time is he going to be spending in prison? Well, Jake, uh, Enrique Tarrio has been sentenced to 22 years. That is still short of what uh, prosecutors had asked. They had asked for 33 years. Uh, Judge Timothy Kelly, who is a, a Trump appointee, said 33 years seemed too long. That's uh, akin to blowing up buildings, shooting uh, troops. Uh, he said, but this case is an obvious outlier. He also said that there is no doubt that uh, Enrique Tarrio was the ultimate leader of the conspiracy, the seditious conspiracy that he and three other members of the Proud Boys, three other leaders of the Proud Boys, were ultimately convicted of. Now, uh, as, you, as, we, as we've been talking about, you know, there's five members of the Proud Boys were part of this very historic trial. This is not a, a charge that is brought very often by the Justice Department. It, you have to go back decades to see another successful case where this has been brought. But this is what we have here. Uh, Enrique Tarrio, 22 years. We have 18-year uh, sentences for another member, uh, Ethan Nordian, and a member of the Oath Keepers, uh, Stuart Rhodes, they got 18 years. But the judge really uh, set aside some of the uh, words from Enrique Tarrio. He spoke to the, to the court uh, saying he was sorry. He said he was sorry for what happened on January 6th. He called it a national embarrassment. Uh, he apologized to the uh, police officers, some of them by name, that were injured in the attack on the Capitol. He also apologized to the citizens of the District of Columbia and said, uh, you know, to the judge, please give me another chance. He's only 39 years old. Give me another chance. I have a fiance. I need to. I want to get married. I want to start a family. And the judge said, the, in the in the end, the judge said that Tario really didn't show uh, any remorse because of the events of January 6. He has done uh, multiple uh, interviews, Jake, in which he said that the Proud Boys did absolutely nothing wrong. So there you have. 22 years, Enrique Tarrio is what uh, Enrique Tarrio has been sentenced to, Jake. Uh, tell us about the, the emotion in the room. I know last week when some of the Proud Boys were being sentenced uh, to double-digit uh, years in, in prison, uh, some of them uh, wept in front of the judge in the courtroom. Uh, what was it like yeah. today? Well, Tario kept his composure for most of the, the, the proceeding. Uh, his mom and his fiance and his sister spoke to the judge. Uh, he was in tears, sobbing when his uh, mom was essentially begging the judge uh, to have mercy on her son. But I will say, Jake, uh, some of those people who 
expressed remorse, who tearfully spoke to the judge. In one case, Dom, uh, Dominic Pozzola, after the judge exited, he raised his fist and said, Trump won. This is something that Tario uh, made a reference to today. He said that he believes, you know, after this is all over, he's going to be away from politics. He's going to leave politics behind. And then he made a reference to that Pozzolo moment. He said, after you leave, judge, you're not going to hear anything but that from me. Clearly, the judge did not buy his plea for, for mercy and his plea that, uh, that he has remorse for everything that happened on January 6th. Uh, Tario was essentially trying to get the judge to believe that uh, he wasn't really, you know, the leader of the conspiracy simply because he wasn't here. He had been arrested a couple of days before and he'd been banned from being inside Washington that day. So how could he be in charge of the riot when he wasn't here? The judge clearly said, uh, Jake, that the jury did not buy that when, you, when, you, when your lawyers made that excuse. Jake? Evan Perez, stay with us. I want to bring back uh, Timothy Hafey, a former federal prosecutor and also the top investigator for the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. Uh, what's your reaction uh, to this uh, sentencing, former Proud Boys chairman Enrique Tarrio, 22 years in prison? Yeah, two things, Jake. One, not surprised at all that Tarrio's gotten the most significant sentence because the Proud Boys really were the tip of the spear for the riot. As we showed in our first summer hearing Last summer, the Proud Boys picked a very vulnerable point in the perimeter of Capitol Security at the Peace Circle, pushed through barricades there, concussing Caroline Edwards, who was a very compelling witness for us, and then very specifically intended to use violence to breach the windows and doors of the Capitol. So they were the instigators and the first to push through a barrier and the first, Dominic Pozzola himself was the first to go inside. Uh, interesting to hear Evans reporting about what Tario is now saying about remorse, because it's very different than what he said right on and at January 6th. He actually texted other members of the Proud Boys, we did this, referencing the riot. And he posted this chilling video of himself in a cape with this ominous music uh, saying, you know, justice is, is coming. So he certainly wasn't remorseful on January 6th. He was sort of gloating about the success. Judge Kelly understandably saw that that difference uh, and punished them severely and appropriately. And, and the hearing, the January 6th hearings, never really quite found any concrete evidence that there were any ties uh, or direct orders to the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers, right? It was, it was more just by implication. We found that there were people connected to the Proud Boys who were also connected to the White House, but exactly right, Jake. We could not establish that there was any coordination between any White House official and the Proud Boys. Uh, and Evan Paris, uh, I, I imagine that it's just too late uh, for the Proud Boys to enter into any sort of plea deal or whatever, right? I mean, th that ship has sailed. Right. I mean, this is it's too late. I mean, the judge really emphasized, Jake, that uh, what the Proud Boys did that day, they were at the front of breach after breach of the Capitol. And for that, uh, you see what the price that they paid with these hefty sentences. All right. Timothy Hafey and uh, Evan Pattis, thank you so much. More reaction next in the Situation Room on this major prison sentence, 22 years for Proud Boys chairman Enrique Tarrio. Also, White House National Security spokesman John Kirby is here to weigh in on this suspicious pending meeting between North Korea and Russia. And also, Dr. Anthony Fauci is here with his take 
on the current state of COVID in the wake of First Lady Jill Biden's recovery. Wolf Blitzer will pick up our coverage next in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.